And I remember we had never landed in open water before, and it's time little 206, and there's some swell out there. So I, I do one approach, and I kind of go around. I do a second approach, and I go around because the swell's coming in. Nick's like, dude, just land the damn thing. <laughs> All right, you know? And, you know, we touched down. It was a little bit bumpy. It was kind of rough because um, I'm used to landing on a carrier. And uh, But, we, you know, we drop an anchor, and we jump in, and I shot a fish. And it was like, for me, that was like, this is why we did it. This is what seaplanes are about. It's freedom, you know? And that's that's what I've always loved about seaplanes. And that, that memory, that first open water landing, spearfishing is one of my favorite memories of starting the company. Spearfishing off a Cessna 206, does it get much better than that? G'day and welcome everyone to episode number 12 of On The Step with that Mallard guy. I'm your host, Dan Bolton. Great to be back in the chair for another session talking all things float planes and flying boats with you all. Love hearing your feedback about the show, folks. Quick shout out to Keaton Rex from the United States who says, Growing up boating on Lake in Kansas, USA and being a commercial rated pilot, I've always had an interest in seaplane flying but have never seen a seaplane before. On the Step has given me valuable information and insight into a potential future career. This podcast is just as entertaining as it is insightful. Definitely am looking to get my seaplane rating after listening to this podcast. Thank you, Keaton Rex, for that great review, folks. If you're also loving the show, please uh, jump on board. Send me a review. It's much appreciated. Also, to get in contact, email me on thatmallardguy at hotmail.com or on my Instagram, you can send me a direct message at thatmallardguy. Now, today's episode is epic. My guest, Rob Cerevolo, is uh, an ex-Navy Top Gun pilot. He's the founder of a large and fast-growing seaplane company in Florida, and he loves spearfishing off the side of his seaplane. He's just an all-round great lad with a great seaplane story, and we certainly went full Maverick and Goose on this chat, that's for sure. But first, I've reached into the cupboard and dragged out everybody's favorite torch, the seaplane spotlight. Okay, folks, so the Seaplane Spotlight shines the light on a seaplane operator anywhere around the world. To be featured for a free shout-out of your business, send me a message on the links I mentioned earlier. Now, today's operator is Paradise Seaplanes, located in Maroochydore, Queensland, Australia. A very cool little operator. You can find them at www.paradiseaplanes.com.au or on Instagram, Paradise Seaplanes. Okay, so what do they operate? They operate... uh, a beautiful Wilga 80 float plane on the Sunshine Coast. Now, if you uh, don't know what a Wilga 80 is, it's a Polish aircraft. I didn't really know much about this aircraft myself. It was designed in the 50s, and their aircraft is one of the only in the world that is on uh, floats, which is pretty cool. They have two aircraft. Only one of them is on floats at present. Uh, their main type of operation is adventure flights or tourism joy flights in this Warbird certified aircraft. They have one pilot at present, and they're generally uh, higher at with about 500 hours on floats due to insurance requirements. Uh, they do not uh, at present offer float plane endorsements, but they may do in the future. And they have some pretty cool flights there, uh, up to 75 minutes, even some 10-minute flights around Maroochydore, Sunshine Coast area. The Wilga also has the doors-off capability, which is pretty cool as well. So uh, thank you very much to Paradise Seaplanes for getting in touch and uh, being featured this week on the Seaplane Spotlight. Okay, folks, let's descend the boat ramp, retract our landing gear once floating and lower the water rudders. And once we've taxied clear of the shoreline obstacles, add power to get going on the step. Right engine is turning. 12% fuel. A lot. Okay, welcome Rob Caravolo to On The Step, mate. How are you going? Hey, good, Daniel. It's great to, great to be here, man. Thanks thanks a lot for having me. Uh, I'm an avid fan of what you put out in the social and, and your podcast, so it's an honor to be here. Really appreciate it. Perfect. Thanks very much for the support, yeah. mate. Really appreciate it. And uh, I'm a bit of a fan of uh, people from Florida, mate. You're, I'm only 12 episodes in, and you're the third guy... 
and a lady as well. I've had a lady on the on the show as well. But yeah. third person from Florida, what is going on? Is there a bit of a seaplane magnet over yeah, there or something? Yeah, a little bit. You know, I mean, look, it's a peninsula, sound, you know, surrounded by water on three sides, and then you've got all the lakes in Central Florida. It's like a seaplane mecca here, and you've got the Bahamas close by, and. Yeah, so we have a lot of seaplane pilots in Florida. In fact, um, yeah, I listened to your your episode with Janessa. I know her actually pretty well, and I'll tell you, man, she's a total badass. So I'm glad you had her on. You know, she, <laughs> she looks at she looks at man, uh, you know, the tats, and she drives motorbikes, and she's this epic kind of seaplane instructor. I love it. So cool. Um, yeah. You need to get her on a flight though, man. She said that she hasn't been with you guys yet on a caravan. Come on. I know. We What's keep talking on? about it. Um, I got I got to fly the Icon actually uh, a couple yeah. of years ago, which was just so cool, by the way. And we've been talking about getting her up with us um, and we're shooting for it hopefully when things open up. Absolutely. Yeah. She's too, maybe she's too badass. I think so. I know. She's going to show just... us up. That's all. <laughs> which, by the way, I know you guys talked about the Icon, but that thing was pretty cool. Like I really enjoyed yeah, flying cool. it, um, the design of it and everything else, but. Yeah, it looks epic. It looks epic. I can't yeah. wait to get my hands on it one day. I'll have to come over to Florida, meet all you guys, I reckon, and uh, and have a run. So yeah, plus you know it's got the AOA gauge, which I love, and um, yeah, the that's design of it. I mean, tool. Yeah, it is. It is. I think it makes flying safer. Yeah. Absolutely, mate. And so I've kind of given away that you're in Florida. Um, so I was speaking to uh, the CEO and founder of one of the probably the world's largest upcoming um, amphibian solutions companies. Um, I know you love that uh, title. <laughs> We're going to talk a little bit about that soon, mate. Uh, the CEO of Flytropic, uh, if people don't know. and um, But, mate, I'm going to start uh, where you got back into aviation to begin with um, because you're also one of the uh, first people I've ever spoken to who's a Navy Top Gun fighter pilot. That's pretty epic. Um Mate, you probably get asked this question more than Neil Armstrong got asked, um, what's it like to land or walk on the moon? But mate, um, is Top Gun all about topless beach volleyball and hooking up with your instructor? It's all about volleyball and jeans. Um, you date your instructor, they issue you a motorcycle when you show up. So it's actually really cool. Lots of high fives, by the way, lots of high lots fives. Of high five. that, yeah. No, seriously, you know, it's funny. Um, I mean... Hell, I grew up on that movie, right? And it's one of the reasons why I'm flying for the Navy and not, not the Air Force. And and as, as cartoonish as that movie is, you know, there's a lot of just great parts that that still resonate to today. You know, it's it's the the briefs, the the flying, the debrief, the, the co- competitiveness of it. You know, but a lot of it's just you know they they don't show the hours and hours of preparation on PowerPoint. You know, giving mission briefs and things like that. That re- what Top Gun really is, which is education lessons learning you know um they just showed the flying part which by the way was a great part of it too so um and that movie by the way is timeless right uh, you know we've all we've all seen it and i'm really excited i'm sure you are too with the sequel <laughs> absolutely mate i think that's one of the that's one of the killers with COVID at the moment isn't it top gun's been pushed wow. back six months oh my god i know december 23rd can't come soon enough but <laughs> that's a yeah. day after my birthday so that's a but that'd you, be a good little birthday present. Oh, good, good. You know, we'll have to wish you a happy birthday and watch it. Yeah, you know, I'm actually, I'm trying. I want to. We're gonna rent a theater here in Florida for all of my uh, employees in the company. We're all gonna watch it together. So I'm excited about that. If theaters ever come back, you know, which is crazy right now. True. But yeah, you know, it's funny. We actually, uh, when I was going through F14 training, uh, we actually would would watch that movie on the weekends during while we were in F14 training. We called it <laughs> going to church. You guys want to go to church? Yeah, let's go to church. We pop the movie in and get psyched up. You know, so that's so cool. Yeah. Mate, what was it actually like being a F-14 Tomcat pilot back in the day? You know, um, I mean, I grew up, like, you know, always wanted to serve in the military. Uh, my dad was an immigrant from Italy, grew up in World War II. Uh, as a teenager during World War II in Italy, and his town was overrun by the, you know, the Nazis and the fascists and stuff. So I kind of was brought up with the idea of serving serve in the military and um, obviously got into aviation. He was, a, he was a pilot. He was a private pilot. And... Uh, I kind of grew up around airports. I didn't play, you know, little league sports or anything. I was actually hanging out on the weekends um, at the airport and we're hanging out with the line guys, you know, watching airplanes and stuff like that. So obviously, you know, combining the two, the, the love of the military and flying, you know, uh, kind of led me towards the fighter pilot community. And um, I was very fortunate to get the F-14 because it was on its way out and I was one of the last F-14 classes and flying, flying that jet was just, you know, it was a dream come true, man. And by the way, I, you know, I'm speaking to another, another Grumman pilot, right? So the, the Grumman Mallard <laughs> is another one of those, like there's certain airplanes that just have this, this timeless, you know, draw this, this, this fantasy of someday I want to fly that airplane, you know, and, and Grumman has kind of had the corner of the market for a while. When you think about the, the, the F-14 and the, and the, and the Mallard and the Goose and things like that. 
And it was such a dream to fly. And then we transitioned to the Super Hornet. I flew the Super Hornet for a while. And and I, I like to compare the two. Like, like if, if somebody's going to tell me that I, wanted, I, I had to drive to work every day and I was going to be in traffic, I'd buy the Tesla, right? Or something like that that's yeah. got auto drive. It's got all the bells and whistles, air conditioning. You know, it's got, you're right, you play the music. It has Siri and all this other stuff. Yeah. And it's, it's great to be a daily driver, but if somebody says, you know, you're going to go to the track this weekend, what do you want to drive? And I'd be like, give me an old sports car that leaf oil all over the place, you know? And that was the right. F-14, right? That was that, all that <laughs> power. And, and I mean, I remember my first time, my first time walking up to that thing to pre-flight it and it's leaking hydraulic fluid. <laughs> like, like, Hey, is that okay? And the instructor's like, yeah, it's fine, man. It's, if, if it's not leaking, that's a problem, you know, cause it means there's <laughs> nothing left. And, you know, and that, that jet was just so, so sexy, you know, and I'm sure, Love to hear your thoughts on the, on how you feel about the Mallard still, because like I, I you know, like I said, there's just ter- certain airframes that were just timeless, and the F-14 was one of them. And I was just so fortunate. I deployed, did combat missions with that thing. You know, we called it the Bombcat because that's what we did. We dropped bombs. There was really no air-to-air mission uh, when I was in Iraq. So you know, it was just such a great airplane. It was like a Cadillac too, man. Like you spend seven hours in the jet, you refuel three times, and you eat your breakfast, lunch, and dinner in the cockpit. You know, yeah. and then land back on the ship. Well, it was, I was very fortunate, very fortunate. Yeah, that's really cool. I mentioned his name before, Neil Armstrong. He's also yeah. one of the, one of the hashtag Grumman boys because not many people realize, but the uh, the Moonlander vehicle is a Grumman. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How cool is that? That's so, so cool. You know, you, me, and Neil, the Grumman yeah, boys. Yeah, I know, man. That's it, the Grumman boys. I love it. Did you ever <laughs> see um, Tom, Tom Hanks produce a series for HBO called the From the Earth to the Moon? No, but I'll have to so look it up now. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's a mini series, and it's about the Apollo space program. And they have an entire episode about Grumman designing the LEM. And it's, it's cool. really cool. Yeah, you got to watch it. And it's a miniseries. It's a drama. You know, it's not. Um, uh, but it was, I thought it was well done. And that was one of my favorite, favorite episodes because it follows the Grumman, like going through the design of this thing and making it, you know, ready to land on the moon and the problems they had with it. So. Neat. It's epic. And, and that, yeah. I'm just reading his book at the moment, one of the books, the, the, the First Man book. And, you know, the fact they built a simulator. Uh, like which was not in you know like the simulators we see, but one of those ones you can actually fly yeah. just to practice it. Like it, it's just like this VTOL spider little thing, you know that. And and he shot out at at three hundred feet because he exceeded a bank angle or something. And it's yeah. crazy it's times back then. It was it's in the sixties, right? I mean, it's exactly. Insane? Like how how long ago that was? And and you see these like the simulators they use for the uh, you know Apollo for the capsule, right? And how just so archaic they were when you see these old videos. And that's what they used yeah. to train, you know, and by the way. Exactly. You, know, um, now, you mentioned before as well, uh, my my thoughts on the, on the Grumman Mallard. I wanted to start first, I, you know, I was in America for um, our honeymoon with my wife. Uh, I think it was at four years ago. We went down California way. And um, what I love about America is how they've just got like, you know, we're driving on the road, the highway, and I look to the left there and there's this like, there's a Tomcat on a stand in the middle of nowhere and we like pull over go into this car park it's just like a random car park in the middle of nowhere there's nothing around it's just like paddock and highway but there's this little it's like a shrine to some military um you know vehicles i guess there's a tomcat i think it was an f5 as well and it's it's you know put up in like the takeoff position so we're taking you know taking photos and everything it was so cool but we're also in hawaii at pearl harbor yeah. and uh, the aviation museum down there and there was another tomcat there and it was on the ground and i walked around that thing man and i can completely understand what you mean by pre-flighting it it was so cool just to so walk around massive. they're such yeah. they're so big aren't they like that was one thing i couldn't believe is that those jets are huge they're huge like you know we we'd pre-flight you know, we'd walk around on the back of it you know that was part of the pre-flight it was just like I don't know, man. I still look back at those times, like walking around the back of the Tomcat. You know, it's just one of the coolest experiences, right? You're standing on this giant jet that has big wings. And then I remember my first time taxiing it. Um, I mean, you're so far forward of this thing, right? The nose wheels behind you. And um, I look back in the mirror and then I turn around and I felt like I was driving a semi truck. You know, it's like, <laughs> that's how I felt. I'm like, holy shit, this thing's big. Yeah, it was just such a yeah. beautiful. I actually went, I visited one in, um, in a museum in Central Florida recently, and uh, got a little emotional. I had to say it, you know. And you like, there's like I said, there's just certain airplanes that just have this trigger of emotion, and the Tomcat was one of them yeah. for me. I know? think that I think that will be f- for me with the Mallard, you know, you know, Give years it. down the track. Because, um, yeah. like you said, um, I still look at that airplane sometimes and just go, Jesus, it's beautiful, you know. Like, 
I, I find the turbine mallard a bit more prettier because of the nice cowling shape. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to sleek. fly radial, don't get me wrong. But yeah, it is yeah. sleek. It's kind of so modern. But I just look at that airplane sometimes and, and think, you know, this was built in 1947 and and it looks so beautiful still. It's such yeah. an amazing looking airplane, you know, 70 years later. But um, yeah. we're not here yeah. to talk all about me and, and the mallard. We're, we're here to talk about you. I know. Um, I'll, I'll just ask you <laughs> questions all day long. Cause, look, I grew, up, I grew up, you know, in the Chalks era here in South oh, Florida. Yeah. You know, yeah. Patty O'Leary, who is um, a good friend of the family, actually died in a goose in 99. He was one of the chief pilots of the Chalks at the time. Um, Jim Wagner, who I don't know if you know any of these names, but Jim Wagner was famous in the seaplane industry here in Florida, um, was actually our chief pilot. Uh, he passed away, unfortunately, in a plane crash, you know, last year. And, um, you know, the, I just grew up around these guys and these airplanes and just falling in love with that Grumman thing. And, and you know, I, I think we fly the caravan float plane, the Amphib, which is a beautiful airplane. Don't get me wrong. Textron does an amazing is, job. Yeah. I think it's by far the most capable flow plane out there right now for this type of mission you know you can argue Absolutely. that the otter's better in certain missions and kodiak's better in certain missions but what we do which is 250 miles or less flying eight passengers in bags or cargo there's the caravan ex on on, on whipline floats like you can't beat it right but i really wish we had like a, a a grumman type product that we could use in regular commercial operations you know and, and well just, they were so successful in that time yeah, weren't they? yeah. and it's, again it's that that romance of the flying boat Right, it's romance of flying boats, just gorgeous. So, anyways, I know we, you know, we're not here to talk about you, but I just want you to know you're. I want, I want to be you when I grow up, man. So, you know, seriously, <laughs> such a gorgeous airplane. So, congrats on that. Cheers, bro. Um, yeah. Thanks very much, mate. Um, look, before we go into the amphibian solutions company that you run, <laughs> I know that you love that yeah. word. Um, I've got to ask you one thing. What carrier landings at night can you talk to us a little bit about that what, what's going through your head when you're doing carrier landings at night especially when the ship's dark like i'd love to just get a little insight into that kind of world yeah i mean you know so obviously it's extremely scary you know and and I, you know i've mentioned this before that that day day carrier landings become fun after a while you know the, the navy does a great job by the way training you up for this thing you know like how to do it but and they start with this like daytime landing in a training jet called a t-45 and we do a bunch of field carrier landing practices meaning we're landing on a runway day and night day and night day and night every single runway is created the whole thing the whole process is standardized but like your first time as you're going out to the jet during the day or going out to the carrier during the day like that's the point where you i think you really decide like did I sign up for the right branch of service? <laughs> like I remember seeing this, I remember flying out and you're by yourself, by the way, you don't have an instruction in the back and, and we, you know, the carriers, whatever it is, hundred miles offshore and you launch off out of North Carolina, wherever, you know, they're doing the, the CQ, CQ or carrier qualification practices. And the first time I see that carrier, I literally like a, a thought ran through my mind, like maybe I should have joined the air force <laughs> and, and maybe <laughs> if, I, if I turn around now, Will they let me transition? You know, and I was like, oh my god! And then you know, you're like, I, I'm here. I prep for it. I can't turn around now. So then you come into the what's called the break. And if you're familiar with the carrier pattern, you know, you don't at night you do those long approaches, right? But during the day, you come over the top of the ship at high speed at 800 feet, and you break into the pattern. There's a lot of reasons behind why you do it. Plus, it looks cool, right? So, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's more of timing and more of getting all the all the planes down the deck in, in, a, in a in a quick amount, you know, or, or a short amount of time, so the carrier doesn't steam or the wind and become predictable, right? It's the whole purpose. But from a pilot's perspective, it's just a ton of fun. But we come to the break and and you know you 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 break down wind, you're pulling G's, and you you know you start dropping the gear and you fall into this like this training pattern, you know. And I watched you on a YouTube video, you know, doing the startup, right? And the CRM and, and the and the the flows and the rote memorization, all that stuff. Like the same thing, getting into the carrier pattern, like you kind of fall back on that, on that training, that standardization, which calms you down a little bit, you know? And then you look over at the ship and you're like, holy shit, wait a second. I gotta learn on that thing in like 30 seconds, you know? And then so you're kind of managing this this emotional roller coaster on this first carrier landing, or I would say up to up to your 50th carrier landing, right? And then you, as you start to bank into the um, you know the turn at the it's called the 180 and the beam, beam position of the 180 and you keep by the way you don't level off on a downwind in, in, in base and final you know it's one continuous turn around the pattern you know and then you roll out in the groove and you touch down right so you bank and then it goes back to your it's amazing like what training will do for you right it goes back to the training about 
okay, I got to hit this AOA, this airspeed, this altitude, right? Or, you know, this AOA at this altitude at this angle angle away from the ship. You look outside. So you're kind of going in and out. And that kind of keeps you um, busy, I would say. So you're not, yep. you know, thinking of like how, oh, my God, I'm going to kill myself. And then you when you roll out into the groove, you're supposed to be flying the ball. So the ball is that little, which you know, I'm sure, the glide slope, right? And you're yeah, looking yeah. to the left side of the ship. And you're supposed to be, you know, going through this mantra of ball lineup, meaning are you lined up, right? And an AOA, right? Angle of attack, ball lineup, AOA. But about every second or third ball lineup AOA, you're looking at the ship, which you're not supposed to be doing. And you're like, holy shit, I'm going to fly into the back of this thing. You know, but if I go around and go, like, I really was going through this process. And then you trap and you trap and you stop and you're like, holy crap, I just did that. And, and I'll tell you, like, after my first CQ experience day and night, I felt like I was unstoppable. Like I was on top yeah. of the world. I remember I was walking through, I was single at the time, okay, and I was walking through um, Charlotte Airport, and I saw this gorgeous girl that no guy would talk to, like literally there's a bunch of guys looking at her, and I walked right up to her and asked her out, and she was she was uh, on her way to L.A. to shoot a, a Playboy. She was going to be a Playboy Playmate thing, you know? <laughs> and it was funny, like I would have never walked up there in a million years, and I was just like, you just landed on a ship, you could do anything, you know? It was just funny, um, but the night landings, though, they just never got easy. You know, and I remember my last, even up to my last night landing, you're, I mean, first of all, you know, especially on deployment, you're in the jet for like seven hours and you're tired, you know, yeah, right. and you're coming back. And there were some days that we would launch off the ship in a complete whiteout. I remember there was a weather system that mixed with like a, a sandstorm or whatever it was. And we launched off the ship at 200 feet, you're in the goo. And for yeah. seven hours, you're in a complete whiteout. And you don't see the ship again until you break out at 200 feet and you're touching down. And those times were just exhausting, you know, so you're coming back to the ship, you've refueled three times, I'm drinking Red Bull in the cockpit, I'm listening to like Metallica to wake myself up, you know, and then you, you, you coming down the, the pipe and same thing, it's super dark, you don't see anything and they tell you to push and you're flying, you know, your ILS approach. And then you see, start to see the lights come out in the distance. And, and honestly, Daniel, it's like pitch dark. And it's, there's this little light out there floating around in the distance. And, you know, and, and you have to remind yourself that, or I would say remind yourself not to think about the fact that that's water just below that light, you know, yeah. just fly the pattern. You, you'll be good. Just trust. It's like press the, I believe button. It's all smoke and mirrors. It's going to work. You're going to survive, you know, and you fly the pattern and then you pick up the ball, you call the ball and you fly the ball to touchdown. And as you're touching down, you're looking left. You're not even looking at the deck. You're looking left at the ball, you know? So, yeah. so in a good landing, the ball's still centered, you know, and, and then you come out of that thing and my knees would still be shaking even at the end of that, that night landing. So it never got easy, but I'll tell you, it's, it's just like anything else. And it's one of the reasons why I love the seaplane industry and the seaplane business. Anything that's challenging like that is fun, right? It gives you Absolutely, a sense of yeah. it's rewarding. Yeah. So I've always loved it. Yeah. It's probably a terrible analogy, but I've just been watching that Michael Jordan um, last dance on mm -hmm. Netflix. And, and one of the things that they talk about with him is that he was so good at being in the moment. And, you know, a lot of the players that never kind of made it, they would always fear losing i guess or fear not performing to their best yeah whereas mj mj would just like when he could he would just be so in the moment as a navy top gun pilot landing on the on the ship like that are you, if, if you're fearing you know what could happen outside of you know following the um the ball there do you think that's kind of a recipe for not making it if you know what i mean like not making it to the to the elite yeah, no, abs absolutely. You know, and, and I remember I'm going to reference Top Gun here for a second, the movie, right? So remember the Cougar, yeah. right? Yeah. Cougar starts thinking about his wife and kids instead of the job. It, there's That actually happens. You know, there's people that just says, you know, this is not for me. And it's, it's rare, but it happens. And I think the Navy does a good job weeding it out through training yeah. and things like that. You know, but but yeah, absolutely. I think there's there's a thing called compartmentalization, right? And and as you know, in aviation, right? And And when you're in the cockpit, you're thinking about the task at hand, not what could happen if it goes wrong. You know, you're obviously ma managing the risk, you're measuring the risk, and, and it's a constant risk management scenario throughout the entire mission, even landing on the ship. But if you if you get hung up on, on oh my God, I'm, I might die here, you won't be able to complete the mission. And, and that applies, I think, to civilian flying. So think of the, the Sully example, right, where he hits all the, yeah. he hits the geese and both engines shut down and he just methodically, if you listen to the, the recording, right, he methodically works through the scenario without thinking of what can happen. Yeah. You know, he's methodically working through it. And then you take that mentality and you apply it to just like anything in life, right? So I'm looking at this, think about we're an airline, 
and this COVID-19 crisis, which decimated the travel industry, you know, there's some businesses that are, are sitting there, you know, at, you know, the CEOs could be sitting at home watching the Tiger King on Netflix, hoping to God it all goes away. Right. And there's other businesses that are just working through this scenario methodically. You can't change the situation. Right. And I think, you know, there's nothing wrong with fear. I think if you don't fear that you're probably psychotic, I think it's how you manage the fear. Right. Yeah. It's just how I see it at least. But. Absolutely, and I think like I talk a lot about. I, I mean, I get so many questions um, on my Instagram or whatnot. People saying like, oh, "You know, I want to become a seaplane pilot. What do I need to do? You know, I want to change my careers and become a seaplane pilot." And I think maybe a lot of the people um, that are not taking that step into becoming it are maybe fearing or finances or blah 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 or you know I'm not going to make it or whatever. Whereas I feel like the people who make it in the industry are just the guys that go. They're so positive and they're just like, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to do it and I'm going to, you know, I will become a seaplane pilot. And it probably comes back to that mentality a bit as well. Yeah. No, look, I mean, the aviation career, and I, I tell young people this all the time. And even during this time, I'm like, look, nothing's going to be, it's not going to all going to be, you know, sunshine and roses, right? I mean, if you're going to have a 40, 50 year career, even a 20 year career, or 10 year career, you're going to have your ups and downs, right? And mm. if you really want to do this, go for it. I don't care. I don't care what's happening in the world. So you think about the people who said, you know, back in 2000, between 2001 and 2008, oh, the airlines are never going to hire again. So screw it. I'm going to go be a, a, a CPA or an accountant, you know, are now looking or, you know, just before the crisis of COVID. We're like, shit, I wish I was a pilot. I've seen a lot of people yeah. switch over, switch careers because they didn't pursue it back when the industry was in trouble. And I think we're in, a, we're in another situation like that now. And if you really want to fly, it'll come back. You know, and exactly. and you don't fear it. You know, just no. and, and by the way, I'll tell you something. And you know, you got an amazing job. I feel like I have an amazing job. You know, I've got buddies of mine who fly for the majors that do it simply because of seniority pay and and yeah. career path, right? And that's yeah. fine. That's fine if you're my age. You know, I'll be 45 this year. But we we have um you know we have had and we still do you know, a lot of young kids in my company, 21, 22 years old that, you know, love flying seaplanes. You could follow them on Instagram. They're like Instagram famous, you know, beautiful places all over the Caribbean, landing at Necker Island and all this other stuff that leave this job because they've been chasing this airline seniority dream. And I think this crisis will be an opportunity for people to rethink their career path and say, you know what? I'm going to go enjoy myself flying for a little bit longer before I go chase yeah. that airline seniority career path. So it might be Absolutely. good for some young people. You Absolutely. Know? And mate, we talk about, um, like I just mentioned a bit before, about maybe pilots kind of stressing about finances to try and take on a dream about float plane flying or seaplane flying in general. That kind of leads me in a little bit to how your company started because I know that finances were a little bit tough when you <laughs> had the dream for Flytropic. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, so, you know, I had this great idea, like I was, you know, I was going to stay in the Navy for 20 years and I was going to start a company someday. And I really loved seaplanes ever since I was a kid. You know, I read, um, uh, where's Joe Merchant by Jimmy Buffett, the whole, I don't know if you, I'm, I don't know if you read that book, you know, but it's the guy that buys a grum and goose and flies around and gets all in all these adventures. You know, I grew up, I told you around the chalks guys and stuff like that. So, you know, something I was going to do when I got older. And in 2009, I read screw it, let's do it by Richard Branson. And I was like, you know, I'm screwed. I'm going to start a company now. And I got out of the Navy on my 10-year mark. I tried to continue to fly for the reserves. So I was making like 30 grand a year flying for the reserves. And I sold my house, my car. I had a motorcycle, sold that. I even had kayaks that I, uh, you know, that I sold for parts. You know, <laughs> and we bought this like 206. And, and I, I hired my first pilot who is now, um, you know, CEO of the company, uh, Nick Veltri. And Nick Veltri, actually, I went to get my seaplane rating. And Nick was my seaplane instructor at Jack Brown's, which, by the way, um, you know, I know you, you mentioned or, you know, Janessa mentioned uh, Jack Brown's. I mean, this is where everybody goes to get their seaplane rating here in Florida. You know, yeah. it's just it's and the Brown family is, is famous. You know, Jack was famous. His, his yeah, son I don't know John, if you so listen to my uh, episode, the Catalina one over in the UK. They use Jack Brown's to yeah, get people. I, ex- I, yeah. That's so cool. Ready, by, by the ready way, to fly the cat. That's another airplane. <laughs> that's, that's a dream airplane, yes. right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But you know, so this is the you know the Brown. You got you got John Brown who runs it now, and then um, he now actually uh, his son-in-law Ben Ships runs it. 
Chuck Brown is actually our Czech airman who was, you know, John's brother. I mean, it's a great family there, you know, and Nick yeah. was one of just those great guys. And by the way, um, you know, I, I would plug to have him on a podcast because I've got all the Navy stories. Nick is like one of those seaplane legends, at least, you know, in what we do in terms of like, you know, the way he flies the airplane, you know, the, the way he teaches guys. And, and he's got a lot of good stories, too. So get him on, that, Mike. Get, yeah, him absolutely. Let's get him I'll, on. I'll connect you with him, man. He's solid. Um, yeah. So, you know, anyway, so I, you know, asked him if he wanted to move to Key West where I was stationed at the time. He said, yes. He kind of picked up his family and moved down there. And, you know, I was trying to support him, you know, his wife and, 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 and me, you know, on a $30,000 a year salary. And it was like, it was brutal. And plus, you know, we started running up credit cards, took a year and a half to get it off the ground, but we got it off the ground, you know, and, and, and at the time, nobody would lend us money. You know, the banks literally laughed at me. I had a, an aircraft broker who, you know, basically was, you know, returning my calls until he found out I was a jackass Navy pilot who was selling everything. He wasn't some rich guy trying to buy an airplane, stopped returning my calls. I mean, there's, you know, it's a true story. And then, and then we were very yeah. fortunate, I think. And I know you have probably have a lot of experiences like this too, you know, where there's just certain people that believe in you or believe in what you're trying to do and will give you a chance, right? So I found, I found a small bank uh, run by a, a wonderful gentleman um, who, who lives in South Florida who actually said, you know what, I'll loan you the money to buy the 206. Um, and then I found, a, you know, a great, wonderful guy who we're very close friends with, you know, to, to insure us. And he gave me a lot of advice because he used to have a seaplane company and, and we kind of got off the ground, you know, and, and we worked very hard to get to the point where we needed a caravan. So, you know, we were running this 206, by the way, we had one 206 and we flew that thing everywhere. And at one point somebody said, hey, you guys have a fleet of these things? I'm like, no, I've got one, but don't tell anybody, you know? So we were just really <laughs> trying to, and, and, and we kind of created a business around professionalism, around good customer service, you know, and around just relationships and partnerships. And the demand increased, we needed a caravan. We did a little bit of a friends and family round of investing. And we partnered with uh, the owner of the Miami Seaplane Base, which is a really cool, if you ever get to Florida, I'm gonna take you to the Miami Seaplane Base. It's this really cool spot. Um, where chalks used to operate out of, and it's right in downtown Miami. So you take off. I mean, you're, by the way, your landing, like your 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 landing approach is like below the high rises as you're coming in, and, and it's very cool. Miami Vice type, you know, type experience. Yeah. It's really cool. And uh, and that part, he he uh, bought 50 percent of a caravan with us, and that's how we got this, you know, 20 year old caravan it was our first airplane on the certificate. And there's so many stories. I, I literally could tell you how we almost went out of business a million times, but. In 2014, we were able to um, bring on some some additional partners, just in a fantastic group of people that um, have a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of background in the industry, uh, sit on major boards, you know, boards, of major airlines and things like that. And we were able to make some some great connections and great support through those guys. So we grew from, you know, one airplane and, and, and two people to where we are today, which is 13 airplanes. I mean, 2020, obviously, is going to be a tough year, but. 2019, to put it in perspective, we flew 45,000 people last year in five different wow. countries, you know, and uh, had 107 employees. And, you know, we got a lot of guys and girls on furlough right now and we're working on bringing them back. But I mean, the company grew pretty fast, you know, and we did it without uh, what I'm proud of. And I think everybody in our team's proud of. We did it without without lowering our quality, because normally when companies grow that fast, quality goes down. And, and it's something like, as you know, in aviation, you can't dick around with with safety and quality and professionalism. No, it's incredible. Yeah. I, I, w I remember watching kind of you guys on, on Instagram just grow and grow and grow. And I was like, you know, some photos that you guys would post, all of a sudden I'm just like, I'm starting to count the airplanes on the picture because I'm like, Jesus, when did they get so big? This is this is insane. Um, yeah. But but what's the makeup of the company at the moment? So where, like, because I know you've got a bit of a base in New York as well. So like what kind of bases have you got? Uh, you've already spoke about how many planes you have uh, and where about are the locations that you go as well? Yeah, so so we're based in Fort Lauderdale, Miami, um, and we you know we have a, a combination of scheduled service and charter here. So there's some scheduled routes and there's charters here. We have um, a we seasonally base airplanes up in New York. So there's um, a company up there called Blade, which is an app. Um, you know, the company's been around for a while, and uh, they but what they do is they outsource their flights to seaplane operators, and we're their largest operator. We flew, I think over like in three months, we flew over five five or six hundred hours in three months last year up there in New York City. So we fly from New York City to the Hamptons, for example. And then right. we have a base in Puerto Rico, San Juan, that that basically flies around Puerto Rico, also uh, international to the BBI. 
And then we have another base in Antigua, where we're setting up another operation down there, and we're flying between Antigua and Barbuda right now. You know, and we have, yeah, yeah. And I think, look, you know, you, you brought it up, and and we could we could anchor on that if you want. The idea of being an amphibious solution, you know, it's it's not like I like to think that there's places that really would benefit from having amphibious airlines, you know, in a region. And I think if you look at the Caribbean, you look at the archipelago of the Bahamas, right? You look at places in Southeast Asia. I mean, there's 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 places that just suffer. By the way, New York City to the Hamptons, right? It's three and a half hour drive in traffic. Just places that suffer with travel, that yeah. amphibious aircraft, it's just such a great solution. You know, it doesn't, by the way, it, cost, it doesn't cost the government anything because you don't have to build a runway or maintain an airport. You just stick a dock in oh. there. And you know this, exactly. right? So, yeah, so that's why I think, you know, like, you know, we've been able to expand because we've been able to show governments just the value of this. And and one thing that we've run into, uh, we've grown is is there's a mis, uh, I would say a, a, a misperception or a pre-perception, if you will, of safety with seaplanes. You know, seaplanes always comes across very cowboyish. Um, I, I had a good laugh, by the way. I was, you know, I was watching your video and I was reading the comments and, and some guy like made a comment, you know, there's always a internet trolls, right? And there's some guy made Absolutely. a comment about you run a checklist or something. I'm like, you know, that's the problem. I think sometimes in the seaplane industry is it is very cowboyish. And, and I, I kind of use the analogy with carrier aviation, you know, there may be three guys in the world that can naturally land on it. I like naturally just have the ability to land on a carrier, but we need more than three Navy pilots. So we create a training program and standardization to develop Navy pilots because we just can't go on pure skill, right? And I think yeah. the seaplane industry is something that's very, uh, I would say in certain regions, non, non-standard. And I know I took a lot of flack on social media for trying to standardize and professionalize the industry, you know? And, and again, it's look, for me flying around a seaplane, I want the freedom. I want to fly. I don't want somebody to tell me what to do. I don't, you know. But when you're flying, just like in combat, when you're flying paying guests, there should be a level of standardization and training, right? So that's what we presented to the governments to and the regions that historically didn't have seaplane flying and said, look, there's, I know what you saw in other regions. I know what your experience has been in the past, but let me tell you how we're doing. We're doing a little bit differently, you know, and we've been able to demonstrate that time and time again, that we can actually expand, you know, training to develop seaplane pilots you know which has been tough to do as you know it's tough to find qualified seaplane pilots yeah i remember i want to talk about that in a second as well but i remember a company i used to work for uh, in the wit sundays there there was a little bit of a reputation at the time or that we would be doing some sort of low-level beat-ups or you know all that kind of like you said that seaplane kind of stuff and it got a bit out of control at one stage and the chief pilot said to us at one stage um, that people who come on a seaplane, they are already so excited to be on a seaplane, you don't have to do anything extra to make, yeah. to impress them. And you're I was right. like, you're right. We don't need to, we're only impressing ourselves and scaring others probably. You know, we don't need to throw this thing around at dot feet to impress people. They're landing on the water. That's cool enough. You know what I mean? Yeah, they're blown away. No, that's a great, I might steal that if you don't mind, actually. So I love that. I love that, man. You know, and again, it's not, it's not like, you know, for me, I mean, if I want to fly around, like, yeah, I want to have a little bit more fun. It's just, you know, when you have, like, when you have people on board that are paying you to fly them from point A to point B, and they're trusting you to get them there safely, like, we just got to tone it down a little bit and just say, you know what, there's a right way to do this. And here's how we're doing it, you know? Absolutely. And like for us on the Mallard, um, you know, we don't do any turns below 500 feet uh, unless we brief it as yep. a crew. And, um, you know, people was like, what do you mean? You're a seaplane. Like, you get airborne, you start turning or whatever. Well, it's like, no, we run a professional seaplane outfit, multi-crew. We're basically like an airline that operates on the water. You yep. know, uh, we yep. we don't do turns below 500 unless we necessarily need them. And sometimes you do need them, obviously, with terrain and whatnot. And that's the whole seaplane mentality. But we will brief that as a crew, and I think that's something that a lot of people don't think about with um, with flying floats. Yeah, no, I love how you put that. I mean, that's the the brief is so important, right? And and so we fly these caravans two pilot crews. I don't know if you know that, but you know, yeah, so yeah. they're single pilot airplane. Obviously, we got the FA early on 2013, the FA to approve an SIC program because we wanted to develop, you know, guys and girls in the right seat, and that's how we've been able to create captains. You know, and, and the whole point of it, like you just said, I always say, look, there's standard operating procedures. It's okay to deviate from the SOP if you have a reason to deviate and you've briefed it. 
right? So mm-hmm. like you said, like, hey, I know standard operating procedures, no, no turns before 500 feet, but because of, you know, confined areas or whatever, we're going to do a turn at 300 feet. Roger that, you know, any questions? And it's a good, it's a quick brief like that just to get the two pilots on the same page because CRM is so important. And I, 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 you know, I've seen other companies that do this two pilot crew concept in a single pilot airplane, but, you know, some of them, some of them run it like right seat baggage. Like the guy in the right seat just yeah. sits there, right? And they still fly a single pilot where, you know, you have to train as a crew. Otherwise it's pointless. It's pointless, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's cool. And you talked about seaplane training before and you just mentioned it again then. So one of the things I heard you speak about previously was how you, you like to employ pilots with absolutely zero seaplane experience. So you can train them the way that your company operates and the way you want to train them to become the pilots you want. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. And again, it, it was very unpopular for, for a little while. And now I think it's been embraced um, because, you know, it, look, just like, just like anything, right. I mean, you, you, you know, you do something new that shakes things up a little bit, you're going to get a lot of flack for it. Right. And, and I understand that and, you know, and it is what it is, but I think now over time, you know, people have seen like the value of that, if that makes sense. So I use New York as an example, right? So when, when Nick and I first started flying in New York, um, I remember being told that there's only, you know, three pilots that know how to fly in New York. So you got to find those pilots who are going to tell you how to do it. I'm like, what, why? Like, why are there only three pilots who know how to fly in New York? Well, New York's very challenging. I'm like, well, well, let's talk, well, what makes it challenging? Let's, well, you know, it's the airspace, it's the, it's the rough water, it's the boat traffic, you know, they list off like five things. I'm like, okay, great. Let's take those five things and break them down into training modules. You just listed five five training models that we could create right now. So we created, you know, this training around New York City, for example. And and last year we kind of kind of made a point. We sent a bunch of junior guys and girls up to New York, not you know super experienced New York pilots, but a bunch of people who've never flown to New York. And like I said, we flew over 500 hours in three months safely, no accidents, no incidents. We had we had guests actually, you know, repeat customers, meaning that they requested us to fly, not the other companies, you know. So. So you start to see the value of this training and you say, you know what, we, this, this can actually work. And we're constantly updating the training program. In fact, right now, you know, this, this downtime, this crisis is we're using this crisis as an opportunity to further tighten up and redesign our training program. So that, you know, by the end of, uh, actually the end of May is, is what our deadline is. By the end of May, we're going to have a, an even newer and, and updated and, and more efficient and effective training program, which I'm very excited about. You know, that's actually, yeah, that's cool. you know, designed around the Navy flight training because the Navy flight training takes you from zero. So think about zero seaplane time to, to become an instructor at Top Gun, right? And, and yep. I use that as, as an instructor in the Amphib. And, and you create a, a path to get there. There's levels that you have to move through. And we just took the Navy's, you know, structure and did the same thing here. And it's been successful. We have, you know, you see, I know you, you follow some of our guys on Instagram and we have these, you know, pilots flying in the Caribbean, these young, young guys and girls, they do such a great job. They're, I mean, you fly with them and you'd be like, this isn't a professional aviator. And it's like a 21 year old kid that we train. And and I got to say, like, that's one thing I'm very proud of is developing these people, you know? Yeah, that's good. I'm, I'm always big on, you know, companies, you hear a lot about companies that say, uh, big C, little T as in, you know, like lots of checking but hardly any training you know yep yeah um, but it yeah. sounds like you got the right balance of uh, you know big t and and uh well i imagine you've got a bit of c there as well but <laughs> um you know lots of training for these guys which is great and uh, yeah i think you know that's it's a great point like the 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 check ride you know so how we say the check the check ride's like a snapshot in, in time right so i may do a check ride with you and you may be like wow you know rob's a, a great seaplane pilot just because i just happened to nail everything because the conditions were perfect but tomorrow the conditions could be different and I could totally screw it up and I've passed my check ride, right? So the idea that the check ride, and I think that's what's wrong with civilian aviation is we train to a check ride, whereas the way the military does it is you train to levels like, and there's stage checks throughout the levels and you get better and better. And you're, it's like a lot of OJT, if that makes sense, on the job training, you know? And um, so we try to, this is a good balance of both. You know, there's a good balance of both. And, and our team, our training team does a pretty nice job of balancing it, I think. So what's the plans for uh, Flytropic in the future? Are you guys continuing expansion? Uh, are you happy where you are at the moment? Or what, what's the plans? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, Tropic Ocean's been around since, two, like, we founded the company in 2009. You know, we got licensed in 2011. And we really started expanding in 2015, roughly. 2016 is really when we started growing a lot. 
and we have, you know, we had intent to to expand to the Caribbean, and and obviously that's just delayed. We're still we're still going to grow our Puerto Rico operation. We're going to grow our Caribbean operation. That's that's for sure. You know, we're we're looking forward to get back to 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 the Northeast seasonally as well. Um, and there's other, you know, there's other places around the world, like I mentioned, Southeast Asia, where I think the the model the model that we've created, which is a, a standardized approach to seaplane operations and amphibious operations where we could pick that up and stick it down somewhere else in the world, you know, might help other regions with transportation problems. And that's, that's kind of how we look at it, you know? So right now our focus obviously is, is getting the company back up and running, get, getting people back to work. Um, that's the one thing that keeps me up at night is, you know, is, you know, people yeah. on furlough here in the U S you know, by the way, I won't get into politics here, but you know, love our government or hate our government, but they're paying people, you know, quite a bit of money to sit, you know, on unemployment right now, which which helps me sleep at night because I know that, you know, I can't pay my employees, but I know that they're not they're not starving, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, here in Florida, you could it's public, right? So you could do the math. You know, we're paying the the unemployment rate between federal and state is thirty four hundred a month right now, which is pretty pretty good considering it's unemployment, you know, and, and that that helps us as a company take a breath and get ready for this. And that's, that's our main focus as a company right now. So as much as we want to expand and grow, we're investing in just getting the company ready to start bringing people back, which we're shooting for, you know, July to start flying again. Yeah. So we're being told in terms of stuff. So, and then, you know, as we move into the fall winter, depending on what happens with the crisis, you know, we're going to continue the expansion in the, in the, in the Caribbean. Yeah. Nice. And you spoke about Asia there. Like my guest um, on episode number 10, Dave Radford's over there flying, for Asian carriers, I've flown in Vietnam, flying EX caravans, IFR on floats, and um, you know there's there's so many opportunities in in Asia for caravan flying, especially. So I think that's going to grow a lot over the next kind of ten years. Um, seeing operators like yourself coming in and you know building these companies up, and um, it's exciting times I think for the Asian market. Yeah, it is. There's actually a company. Um called CM Seaplanes, S-I-A-M. Uh, if you Google, you'll see, and they, they're they launching a Thailand operation. And we're yeah, working, yeah, we're actually working with them on, on helping them develop all the, the training and procedures and stuff like that. So I, I'm really excited about that project. I think it's, you know, you, you need the right people in charge to do this right, you know? And I think it's a good, I think they have a good team over there. I think they'll, they'll be successful. Awesome. Hey, mate, um, obviously being the CEO and founder of Flytropic now, are you getting a chance yourself, well, outside of COVID times, to... Uh, get in the seat and uh, keep your skills up in the air. Yeah, I don't, I don't fly anymore. You know, so for the company at least, and and it's um, I, I made that choice a few years ago uh, because I just, you know, we're so busy as a company, and I spend all of my time, you know, either traveling for work or on conference calls or in meetings. That, you know, for me, flying has always been an escape. By the way, and and if we get a chance, for example, the plane's going somewhere on a meeting, and I'm like, hey, do you mind if I take the leg? Because we're not flying paying fasters, but, but I, I, you know, look, I was a carrier pilot, a top gun instructor. Like I know, I know, I can jump in an airplane tomorrow and do it safely. But I feel again, like with the with the flying public, right, that it's not right for me to not fly for two months and jump in a cockpit and take paying passengers somewhere. Like it's just not the right thing to do. And um, and I know some companies, some smaller companies do that. The CEO goes and flies, and and that's cool. You know, it's great on Instagram and everything else, but. You know, but but it doesn't work in our in our business, considering you know the you know the level that we're we're growing at and stuff like that. And and look, I miss it though. You know, um, I dream about it. I literally have dreams about flying. And during it's funny during this time, I thought about oh, you know, it's a downside. Maybe I'll just I'll get get you know get checked out. And then, and then I thought to myself, I said it's not right for me. As much as I want to do it right now, it's not right for me to take the a, a slot from one of my pilots on a furlough. Right. So if I start flying yeah. a line right now, that's one less job. So I'm like, OK, so I'm just not going to do it. I'll suck it up. You know, so I do get to fly occasionally, but I don't fly for the company and I miss it like crazy. I do. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, you, you guys, you mentioned before you read uh, Richard Branson's book. Um, what was it titled again? Uh, screw it. Let's do it. Yeah. Screw it. Let's do it. Yeah. Great title. Um, now you also get to fly to Necker Island. Have you met the great man and flown him around yourself or not? Yeah, actually, it's been really cool. We worked with Necker and Virgin as a whole a lot, you know. So we, we were able to make create a relationship with Virgin. Um, he actually flew with us several times here. He flew from uh, like in the Bahamas. We took him to a couple of cool spots um, on some meeting he was having, and then when you know Virgin Voyages, which is the new cruise lines launching. 
um, he uh, had a chance to fly with us again, and we flew him to one of the cruise islands they were looking at. And it's cool. Actually, if you go to his blog, he wrote one blog about meeting me, and there's a picture of meeting him with the book, which is so cool because I had him sign it, you know, which is kind of neat. I've, I've had that dog-eared copies, you know, since 2009, so it's cool that he signed it. And then um, I was actually going to ask if you could maybe just sign through the Skype meeting here that you, your little signature, if that's all right. Is, yeah. is that cool? Or? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Can I I'll break that out my, with my finger? I'm sure. Can I have your um, digital autograph, please. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but um, but yeah, and you know the Virgin whole Virgin groups like a cool. Like I got to go see the um, Virgin Galactic, the first spaceship launch, which oh, was cool. just so badass. Yeah. That thing. I flew the simulator, by the way. When you talk about it, you're a pilot, you you'll you'll appreciate it. Like the sim was amazing. You know, I flew up into space. I flew the whole profile, and they did such a nice job. You know, we were talking about you know early on about the 1960s and you know creating simulators and how challenging that is, right? In the 1960s, well, well, the Virgin Galactic team created this simulator for the spaceship, and the software is what was so impressive to me because it they made spaceflight so easy. You know, just like flying, like when you're flying the approach, you know, you just we say in the Navy, put the thing in the thing. You know, put your little velocity vector, you know, line it up with the two yeah. lines and you're good. You won't kill yourself. There's a yeah. there's basically a, you know, a little carrot that you follow and you fly the whole profile into space and down. It was awesome. Like it makes it, it is simplified. So that was a pretty cool experience. But yeah, overall, I think I'm really excited about what we're doing down there in BVI, Necker and other places. Yeah, cool. Mate, um, before we finish, uh, I wanted to ask you, is there any kind of epic seaplane story that you have that you just like i've got to tell people this one have you got anything in your back pocket there that you love well telling I, people? You know, it's, it's funny um maybe i won't steal nick's thunder maybe because he you know he had uh he had a good one flying richard branson around which i thought was kind of cool um so maybe if you get him on a podcast i'll let him tell that story because that was one of my <laughs> you know best best experiences i got a few you know but like some of it lately has been in the back like for example Places in the BBI that for since the 1980s have not had seaplane service. Other companies have tried, failed, you know, and then we work with the governments to do it safely. And watching a seaplane land in a place that has not seen a seaplane since the 1980s for me is just absolutely magical, you know, absolutely magical. Um, and that's been cool from from a business perspective. But from the personal, like the flying perspective, man, I just remember so you know, learning to fly that 206. So the Car- the Caravan's an awesome, awesome airplane, right? But the 206 in my mind is what you, you just, you're a better seaplane pilot if you learn on the 206. So we actually, our training program has our young guys and girls going through a 206 syllabus because yeah. you don't have the power. You can't reverse, right? <laughs> you just, you got to yeah. figure it out. You know, this is a single engine piston, man, you know, so, so. Oh, the Caravan better, makes you lazy. Yeah. Power, you know, power sloppy, man. That's, it makes you sloppy. And the, yeah. and the 206, and, and um, I remember the first time uh, we bought the, I bought the airplane. And by the way, flying it from California, I, I flew out with a Navy buddy of mine. And uh, we get in this airplane. We actually, have you ever seen, I'll back up, have you ever seen Fool's Gold? Matthew McConaughey? Yes, yes. Yeah. So the My yellow, old man actually, well, I got a, a quick little side topic yeah. on that. My old man actually flew that seaplane um, that was in that movie for his operation for a little bit when his plane was down. And um, one of the ex-Mallard pilots was actually Kate, is it Kate, uh, what's her name? Kate, Kate Hudson, uh, yeah, Kate Hudson. Kate Hudson, yeah. he was Kate Hudson's stunt double for the oh, wow. for the crash scenes. So, yes. yeah. Well, you know, Small so world. your old man flew my airplane. That's, that's the airplane hey, that was that's in the movie. No way. Yeah, really? so our, uh, our first 206, I'll send you a picture, it was, all, it was yellow. Yeah. And it's so cool, you know, so yeah, I'd love to, I'll send you a picture. That the actual airplane in the movie. The actual airplane in the movie, yeah, yeah. Because that, that's over in Australia now. It's it's operating for a company called GSL Aviation on wheels. So, it's yeah, they had two, so they had two airplanes. They actually had three. They had one that crashed. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then they had like two that flew, and this was one of them apparently. So I don't know if you flew okay. this one or not. I could send you the serial, serial number. And you could ask them. Yeah, I think this one was in Australia for a while, but um, and yeah. it was a fair while ago. So I'd, yeah, yeah, maybe yeah, we'll, this, we'll see. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know there was it, three seaplanes though. Yeah, this thing made its made its way apparently to California. And you know what? Maybe the guy was full of shit. <laughs> I'm gonna say I think I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna been, do some things on the you know? Yeah, maybe. But anyway, it was yellow. It was painted exactly like it was in the movie too. Um and now we looked through the logbooks actually and maintenance was done in Australia because that's where they filmed it, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, so the logbooks match up, but um I'll send you a picture. 
of the airplane when I first got it. Yeah. So anyway, so so it was in Sacramento, California. You know, like I said, I sold every, I just sold everything, and we get this thing. It's it's January, I think it was right end of January, and so we try to make it from California to Florida. I had never flown in Amphib before in my life. This is literally my first flight in Amphib, and we take off out of out of uh, Sacramento. I'm trying to get to Vegas, and it we had to fly over the Sierra Nevadas, which are like eleven thousand feet or like 10, 10,000, whatever it is. And we had to get up to 11.5 and it took me 45 minutes. I was like zoom climbing and I'm like, this is the worst thing I've ever done in my life. Like, what am I doing here? You know? And then the, the next day we're trying to beat a weather system and we're doing a hundred knots, you know, we end up, it's a VFR only airplane and I'm IFR in the snow. I've got ice on both wings because like, I literally, I'm looking out the window and I'm like, is that ice? My friend Danny's like, I think so. And I open the window and I reach out and take my glove off. <laughs> I'm like, oh, crap. And we, we set it down on the south rim of the Grand Canyon at the airport there. We get stuck there in a blizzard for three or four days. And and I'm, I'm sitting there. I'm like, what did I do? I gave up a Navy career and sold everything I had. I'm, I'm like, this is like I'm about to fail before I even started, you know, but we got the airplane back. And, uh, you know, we got it painted and stuff like that. And, and this is the story I was trying to get to it. You know, Nick, Nick and I kind of landed in the water for the first time, which was such a cool experience. And I was like, man, I go, look, the whole reason we're getting into this company was I always thought it'd be so cool to go spearfishing off a seaplane, right? That's like the dream, like to go yeah. somewhere remote. So, so we, we grab me and Nick jump in the cockpit and we grab a Navy buddy of mine and another friend from living in Key West. And we take off at a Key West airport. We fly out to the reef. And I remember we had never landed in open water before, and it's tiny little 206, and there's some swell out there. So I, I do one approach, and I kind of go around. I do a second approach, and I go around because the swell's coming in. Nick's like, dude, just land the damn thing. <laughs> All right, you know? <laughs> and, you know, we touched down. It was a little bit bumpy. It was kind of rough because um, I'm used to landing on a carrier. And uh, But, we, you know, we drop an anchor, and we jump in, and I shot a fish. And it was like, for me, that was like, this is why we did it. This is what seaplanes are about it's freedom you know and that's yeah. that's what i've always loved about seaplanes and that that memory that first open water landing spearfishing is one of my favorite memories of starting the company because we just you know just this is that's what seaplanes are about and then i think more recently you know we have a lot and we do a lot of um hurricane relief and after hurricane dorian hit the bahamas we evacuated 900 people and wow. because the seaplanes are able to get into these really remote areas you know and we were carried 200,000 pounds of cargo. And, and for me, watching the seaplanes do good, you know, and get people out of locations and bring water and supplies in and stuff like that for me is like, again, just reminds me of why seaplanes are so important in our industry. Absolutely. You know, and I don't think they're embraced enough for that type of thing. So anyways, we got a lot of those stories, but but those are two more recent memories. Epic, man. No, I think you, what you guys are doing is really good. And like I've heard a lot about the relief stuff that you do. That sounds like uh, really amazing that you can help out the community as well, not just, uh, you know, make a living out of it. So it's cool that you're giving back. And Yeah, you know, the whole team, the whole team's in it. Uh, I'll tell you, like, man, what I love about my, my company is the people. And, um, I mean, you've got these pilots that are working just long days flying around. I mean, you, you know how challenging it is. This is what I love about seaplane flying, by the way. It is challenging. No matter how standardized it is, the water and the winds are never the same, right? It's exactly, always different. Yeah. It's not like landing on a runway. But these these guys and girls are flying into these, like, you know, hurricane disaster areas in all types of, of wind and, you know, sea states, and they're picking up people. I mean, like, it was, it was just tremendous to watch these people work and the entire support team working, you know, long hours, loading the airplanes, the maintenance team was working long hours. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I get a lot of credit because we do it, but I mean, honestly, it's like the entire team works like day and night, day and night, you know, to, to do this support and nobody's asking for, you know, overtime or raises. It just becomes this, this massive effort. And that's always made me very proud of the company. Awesome, man. Uh, I'd like to finish the podcast with a, uh, little questionnaire called the splash and dash questionnaire just like the land plane touch and go the seaplane splash and dash <laughs> we're just going to touch on a few little questions here okay. um first of all uh what would be your favorite seaplane that you've ever flown yourself oh man i've ever flown myself probably probably you know i'm, I'm sorry textron but probably the cub you know that cub? Awesome. yeah that thing is just fun man it's yeah. fun <laughs> that's that's goes back to like no radio you know i mean it's just it's got a stick so yeah, exactly. Air cam real flying, second, by the way. Have you flown an air cam? The little no. twin engine thing? Oh, look it up. Google air cam, open cockpit. Yeah, right. 
Yeah, it's actually pretty badass. That's probably number two. Okay. What about your... What would be your dream seaplane to fly? If you could pick any seaplane in the world, you know, what would you choose? Goose. Goose, Goose. yeah, epic. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> twin, twin radial hull. Yep. That's epic. Yeah, that's the um, one. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be getting on, hopefully, um, very shortly, Wilderness Seaplanes Chief Pilot coming soon cool. to this podcast. Yeah, uh, yeah. Do they fly? He's uh, already shown interest. Uh, is it turbine goose or is it radials they fly? No, they're all just three radials, but um, oh, I think they're the only other commercial seaplane or commercial flying boat operating in the world, wilderness, and us. Um, that, awesome. You know, obviously not not firefighting or or training. Yeah. Um, which is pretty cool. Um, what would be um your dream seaplane job if you could step away from the CEO side of things and just go anywhere in the world to fly a seaplane? Would it be wilderness flying the goose? Do you reckon? I think you know you know that it's it's they don't do it anymore. But for a while, I followed it. Like remember the Quicksilver, the surfers, like they were flying yeah. all these remote locations. Like that to me. I think like it was doing, Billabong, wasn't it? Or Billabong. You're right. It's Billabong. Yeah, that yeah. like flying. You know, flying to all these locations like around the world to me is just the dream, right? Like in an, in a flying boat. That, yeah, that was in an dream. albatross. Yeah. Yeah, as an albatross, exactly. That would be um, the dream for me. That would be cool. I think that machine's actually for sale, mate. So. Yeah. Get it get it on the Fly Tropic ASA. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. It's like, you know, they have the titanium restrictions now, right? It's the G111s, I think, are the only ones that could be certified for. Yeah, true. Yeah. yeah. Which there was only a few of those built. I yeah. think the Billabong one, though, is a G111. So, yeah, maybe look into it. Um, yeah. And, mate, finally, um, you get to meet a lot of young, aspiring seaplane pilots. Um, what would be some advice you would give them? I think we mentioned a little bit about before, but have yeah. you got anything that you would you would – Shout out to those young guys looking to try and get a foot up in the seaplane industry. Yeah, absolutely. You know, number one, pull it, pull the trigger and do it. Like, you know, if you want to, if you want to be a pilot, be a pilot, you know, don't think around with it, you know, figure out how you're going to pay for flight training, you know, hang out with companies like ours, you know, offer to, you know, stick around and, and see what you can do to help, um, you know, definitely, you know, work towards some sort of a goal, which if you want to be a seaplane pilot, you know, work towards that goal. So that means, you know, if somebody offers you a, a jet job somewhere, but you really want to be a seaplane pilot, you know, stick to the seaplane route, <laughs> you know, if that's what you want to do. Um, number number two, or I guess number three is do other things. So like, this is what I tell a lot of young pilots right now. The industry is going to go up and down, you know, and we're on a down right now, right? So number one is like, do other things that pad your resume. So, you know, I recommend to, when people come on board with us, I'm like, look, you should work in operations. You should volunteer in training. You should learn other parts of the business so that when the next pilot shortage was, by the way, um, I used to say this, I said this thing was coming, you know, that this downturn was coming. I didn't know it was going to be a virus, but I would, you'd ask my employees that always tell them an in-doc. I'm like, look, there's going to be a time where pilot jobs are not available. And everybody laughed like, oh yeah, there's a pilot shortage. All we need is 1500 hours at a heartbeat. You know, I'm like, no, listen, trust me, pad your resume. Because I've got buddies of mine who get furloughed from the airlines that are like, man, I could get a job anywhere else right now just simply because I was training officer, I was this or was that, you know? So definitely work towards other things to make yourself more well-rounded to help help weather the downtimes in a career. And, you know, the final thing I think, which I say all the time, and I'm going to hammer it home, don't be a rush to get to the left seat of a 777. If you're enjoying yourself flying you know continue to do that like especially if you're young i mean you think about this daniel like 21 year old kids are in a rush to get to the left seat of a triple seven so they leave the job flying around the caribbean to go do this and they're going to have you know 44 years in one job and i look back at the time you know i joined the navy a month to the day before september 11th i had buddies of mine telling me no you want to be a pilot go to the airlines go to the airlines are hiring like crazy and all, you know, and I said, no, I want to, I want to go experience something else. So if you're going to, you know, want to have a career in aviation, try to experience other parts of aviation. Don't just be in a, in a you know, don't just chase the money, I guess. And I think seaplane flying is a great way to do that. It's adventurous. It's challenging. It makes you a better pilot, you know, and it's fun and it's fun, you know, so don't, Absolutely. don't be in a rush. Yeah. Well yeah. said, mate. There you go. You heard it first from the CEO of Flytropic. He's uh, giving you aspiring seaplane pilots the best advice to get out there and get that float rating and get that seaplane job and follow your dreams. And 
Rob, it's been awesome having you on the show, mate. Really loved our chat all about your amphibian solution company, Flytropic. <laughs> it's been great, man. Thanks a lot for having me. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate you coming on the step, mate. All the best. All the best. Take care. And that's the show for today, folks. How cool is Rob? What a dude. What an operation. I'll be dropping into those guys for sure one day, so make sure you do as well. You can check out Flytropic on Instagram at Flytropic. Also, Rob on Instagram at FlytropicRob. Don't forget to leave me a review if you like this podcast and get in touch to be featured on the Seaplane Spotlight. And before we go, folks, here is a little taste of episode number 13 coming to you next week. The icing layer was generally only about 3,000 feet thick. So if you could generally find some area um, where you could climb up through it, but occasionally we couldn't. We'd get just about to the top and have so much ice that the airplane would uh, oh, start shaking a little bit, even with max power, so we'd have to descend back down and uh, melt it off. But... Until next time, everyone, thanks for coming on The Step. <laughs>